Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demonized or demon-possessed, begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled, that word marveled can be translated, they were blown away. In Mark chapter 5, we're introduced to three characters, a demon-possessed man in verses 1 through 20, the ruler of a synagogue in verses 21 through 24, and then a suffering woman in verses 25 through 34. What do all three have in common? All of them will eventually wind up at the feet of Jesus. The stories will include the themes of release and restoration and resurrection. The passage in Mark's gospel reveals many, many things, but we're going to focus on three things. Number one, the passage gives us clues concerning Satan's purposes towards humanity. 
the scriptures reveal that there are, in fact, interdimensional beings, supernatural powers, demonic spirits who desire to ruin and destroy human beings. The passage also exposes society's utter failure and inability to deal with the ongoing problem of human sin and demonic oppression and possession. And finally, it demonstrates the Savior's absolute control over every aspect of the universe, his compassion and his Power over the dark forces of evil. Now, some Christians have what I would call an unwise and an unhealthy preoccupation with Satan and demons. There is something about us and there's something inside of us that crave the supernatural. In the first service, I was reminded a person spoke to me about all of the programs that are on TV. And particularly now there's ghost hunters and there's poltergeist stories. There's this preoccupation with the supernatural. But there's also the opposite extreme of some so-called Christians who have gone so far as to suggest that really there's no such thing as the devil. There's no such thing as demons, but you wouldn't be right because Jesus believed that there was such a thing as Satan and that there are such a thing as demons and whatever else you do with the passage, you can't simply pretend that this is some sort of psychological detachment or emotional exaggeration. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his classic volume, The Screwtape Letters, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. And so in verse 1 we see Satan's dark purposes towards humanity. Then they came to the other side. Remember the passage began in chapter 4. In the evening you'll remember what we've been studying. Jesus and his disciples get in a boat. And there's a gigantic storm that's raging on the sea of the Galilee. There is opposition and there is a destructive storm. And you'll remember Jesus calmed the storm and they find themselves on the opposite side in a place called Gedaza. It's the, the area of the Gadarenes from the east side of the Galilee as you go east into what is now the Transjordan. This is the area that was occupied by the Gentiles for the most part. As a matter of fact, at the end of the passage where it says Decapolis, Decapolis, it means the place of the ten cities. The largest being a place called Scythopolis or later or earlier it was called Bethshean. But at Scythopolis, there was a Roman legion garrisoned there. There were Roman troops in the Galilee. There were Roman troops in Jerusalem. And there, there was a whole legion of Roman soldiers garrisoned in Caesarea or Caesarea by the sea. And in verse 2, it says, and when he had come out of the boat, that's Jesus. 
Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. I want to set the, the tone for you. It's dark. It's pitch black after a storm. There is probably mist that's coming from the ocean. Actually, it's not an ocean. It's a, it's a, it's a freshwater sea. And as it comes up, remember in that pitch blackness, as you've just survived the storm, you hear a scream come across the waters. You hear screams, repeated screams. And it says, there are limestone cliffs and out of the cliffs, there comes a man with an unclean spirit. And the word unclean is a euphemism. It means something that's void of moral content, but it means a demon. This is a malevolent spirit. We believe that that this malevolent spirit is part and parcel of a group of spirit beings that in rebellion and disobedience disobeyed God. By the way, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically where and how these demons came into existence. In ancient times, some people believed that they were the dead who were drowned in Noah's flood. Some thought that they were a perverse group of people that were neither angels nor demons, but the progeny of both who were doomed to wander the earth. And of course, in later days, early church fathers wrote that these were in fact minions, followers of Satan, Paul writes that it is Satan who instigates false doctrine in 1 Timothy 4. It's Satan who perverts the word of God, Genesis 3.1. It's Satan who hinders the work of God's servants in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It's Satan that blinds human beings to the truth in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And a careful Bible study reveals that it is Satan who accuses Christians before God in Job chapter 1, verse 7, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It's Satan Satan who sets traps and snares in 2 Timothy 2.26, who tempts in Matthew 4.1, Ephesians 6.11, afflicts Job 2.7, deceives, undermines the sanctity of the home, prompts sinners and saints to rebel and disobey God. But whatever else it is, it's an alien entity, extremely malevolent, and it says in verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him and always, always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs. The word crying out literally means Screaming, screaming, and cutting himself with stones. You know, at this point, it's typical for a person to ask the question, how do you find yourself in this kind of circumstance? How does one find oneself demonically possessed? 
the pattern seems to be that demons get a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate and commit sinful practices. And because the person consistently and persistently yields to Satan and to sin, the thief begins to rob and take everything. It usually begins with the ability of the person to possess their own faculties. The demon-possessed person loses their family and their friends and their freedom and their self-control. And just like in this passage, they often lose their sense of decency. The man has an unhealthy preoccupation with the dead. He lives in the tombs. The man has supernatural strength and self-destructive preoccupations. The demon runs around naked and he lives like an animal screaming and cutting himself and frightening the sane citizens and they lose their peace and their purpose for living and the miserable and terrifying conditions show you the depths of personal depravity. As a matter of fact, Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, translates the passage graphically. Having come out of the boat, immediately there he meets out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had settled down, who was making his home in the tombs. No longer could anyone bind him. He was out of control. He couldn't be secured with manacles or fetters. These are ropes and chains that would have been tied to both his hands and his feet, continually screaming, shrieking, lacerating himself with stones. We can never underestimate the destructive power of Satan. He's our enemy. And by the way, he would destroy all of us if he could. He would destroy you, given the opportunity. Like a roaring lion, he seeks whom he can devour. And he works, the Bible says, in the lives of unbeliever, transforming them into the children of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It may not be as weird and as wicked as our example here, but it is bad. As a matter of fact, the solution that society and science offer is often ineffective. I've been a Christian for many, many years. I've served the Lord for over 30 years. And in 30 years of ministry, I've probably experienced three times in different circumstances where I could say without question, this was a, an instance of absolute demonic possession. My first encounter with what I would call a really, truly demon-possessed person took place in San Bernardino, California. I was very, very young. Just starting out in ministry, was praying with people, ministering to people, encouraging people. And I was going to a hospital to pray with a particular person whose mother had been diagnosed with cancer. And I walk into the hospital and I make my way down the corridor and I hear a person screaming as if they're on fire. Howling, shrieking. And through the howling and the shrieking, I hear something that I don't quite understand. I'm listening carefully for the words, and I hear someone scream, Tengo sed! It means I'm thirsty. And then I heard a voice 
scream Me estoy quemando You know what that means? I'm burning up. That's exactly what it means. Estoy en fuego. I'm in the fire. And I hear the scream. Unbelievably, un hair curdling, where the goosebumps stand up, where you begin to sweat, your hands begin to sweat. And I'm hearing this, tengo sweat. I'm burning. And then I hear something else. Gino? Gino! And that's when my heart sank. <laughs> and I heard the scream after scream as I'm making my way through the corridor. And I go into the room and there is a Cuban-Haitian immigrant strapped to a gurney. Her hair is stringy. She's completely emaciated. She has no front teeth. And she looks at me as if her eyes are on fire. And she goes, Gino! And the psychiatric technician is reading a newspaper and looks up at me and goes, and you are? And I said, I'm Gino. <laughs> and the psychiatric technician looked at the patient and then looked at me and said, are you a doctor? And I said, not yet. And I walked towards the woman and she began to spit as if she were spitting blood. And it looked like she was getting ready to tear the restraints right off of the gurney. I wish I could tell you that the story ends happily, that I cast the demon out and she's delivered and we all live happily ever after, amen. But that's not what happened. I left quickly. You know what? I wasn't prepared to deal with that. If you've ever actually encountered a really, truly demonically possessed person, the Bible says that the solution to the demonically possessed is exorcism. Society offers a solution, bind them, guard them, fear them, imprison them, medicate them. But that can't make the emptiness, and that can't make the darkness, and that can't make the wickedness, and that can't make the insanity go away. We understand that society offers a limited amount of restraint and protection, but they, society can't permanently solve the problem of sin or demonic possession. At this point, people will usually ask me, can a Christian be demon possessed and I don't have time to explore the question in detail but the short answer is no in order to answer the question we have to examine what it means to be a Christian what it means to be truly born again to have experienced forgiveness of sin and hope and the occupation of the Holy Spirit inside of you Paul said if anyone is in Christ he or she is a new creation the old things have passed away behold everything has become new it says in 2 Corinthians 5:17. John records these words in John, in John chapter 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And it says in 1 John, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, that is practice sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one can't even touch him. 
When the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, he doesn't sublet the apartment. But sometimes our flesh can exercise tremendous influence. Sometimes our own heart is so wicked and so preoccupied that it feels like there's an alien entity inside of us. And when we feed our flesh and when we feed its lusts, it becomes powerful and strong. Paul wrote that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. John White wrote, quote, evil indulged eventually becomes evil that controls us. And some people blame demons when in fact the flesh is the guilty party. And most of us would be genuinely shocked if we knew the depths of depravity that we're capable of generating. As the Russian poet Turgenev wrote, I do not know the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like. Terrible. Sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves as we begin to explore and discover just how wicked we are. It reminds me of the story of a little girl who was fighting with her brother and their mother came into the room and they were kicking and biting and screaming and the mother grabbed the little girl and she said, why did you let the devil put it in your heart to pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shins? And the little girl thought about it for a moment and she said, well, the devil maybe put the idea to pull my brother's hair, but kicking him in the shins was my idea. <laughs> it's a tough line to draw. Where influence begins and decision ends. But I want to point something out to you. That in this passage, there are clues given to us to truly discern the symptoms of a genuine possession. In his book, Occult Bondage and Deliverance, Kurt Koch lists eight distinct symptoms. Before I list those symptoms, I want to preface it with what we've already seen. A person who is genuinely demonically possessed will typically isolate himself or herself. They'll have an unhealthy preoccupation with death and dying. And they'll also be self-destructive. In his book, Kurt Koch says in verse 2 that the demoniac has an unclean spirit. And that probably is pretty self-evident. In order to be demonically possessed, there has to be a real spirit present. The possessed person is genuinely, really indwelt by an unclean spirit. And I need to tell you something. In 30 years of ministry... I've had literally scores of people come up to me and say, I think I'm demon-possessed. If you think you're demon-possessed, you aren't. No demon really comes forward and says, excuse me, I'm demonically possessed, could you help me out? It doesn't really work that way. The second symptom is the possessed man exhibited unusual powers of physical strength. No one could bind him anymore. And I'm not talking about an adrenaline rush, and I'm not talking about a medicated rush. I am talking about unbelievable strength 
strength brought on by the presence of an alien spirit. That's the second symptom. The third characteristics are what I call and what Kurt Koch calls paroxysms. Probably a more accurate description would be uncontrollable fits of rage. He had broken the chains and pieces, which was strong. And remember, he was tamed by no one. And so that when people would meet the demonically possessed person on the road, they would run for their lives. The fourth sign is what's called personality disintegration. It's the splitting and then the manifestation of foreign personalities. The demoniac runs to Jesus for help, but then cries out in fear. And that will be typical of a truly demonically possessed person. There is a a bifurcation, a fragmentation that takes place within the personality structure. And the fifth sign is what I call resistance or opposition to the Christian faith and spiritual things. You'll remember in verse 7 it says, And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus? Jesus is holy and pure, and he is unholy and impure. Jesus is moral and righteous, and he is immoral and unrighteous. Demons don't have anything to do with the Son of God. And so it's been my experience that if a person is truly, genuinely, understandably, demonically possessed, there'll be certain characteristics. For instance, when a person has a mental or an emotional disorder or or is uncomfortable, when I pray with a person who's mentally or emotionally disturbed, when I pray with them, typically they will become calm and they will become peaceful and there will be a sense of peace and comfort. But if a person is demonically possessed, there will be an outrageous manifestation, what I would call of of, um, resistance. The person will scream and yell and in in true cases of demonic possession. The sixth symptom is also found in verse 7. Remember when he says, what have I to do with you, Jesus? How does a demonically possessed person in the middle of the night, in the darkness, start running towards the boat? And it's as if a supernatural power is compelling him and throwing him into the dirt and making him lay prostrate. How does this person know who Jesus is? This is what what. Koch calls hyperesthesia, what I call an excessive sensibility, I think what we might even say is this is access to supernatural information that you wouldn't normally know. When I'm at a hospital and I'm approaching a Cuban-Haitian immigrant who I've never seen who has been medicated and restrained and all of a sudden is calling my name as I'm walking down the corridor, how does this person know that? In another instance where I was dealing with some really bad things, I was dealing with a particular person who had an unhealthy preoccupation with the dead, who were cutting themselves constantly, and who would spend the night in graveyards. This person would sleep with the dead. And I remember walking with this person, and all of a sudden another person stops and looks them straight in the eye and points to them and says, you sleep with the dead. Now, how do you know stuff like that? You see, the presence of a real 
supernatural power is going to be evidenced. And I'm going to suggest to you that all of these characteristics have to be present before a clear and convincing diagnosis of real possession can take place. And the seventh sign is a variation or an alteration of voice. Note it says a legion of demons spoke out of the possessed person. In that culture, a legion is some 6,000 troops. Imagine the wickedness and imagine the power and the presence of this possessed person with so many foreign entities. And the eighth characteristic is what we call occult transference. In other words, there's a mechanism in place where under the circumstances of real exorcism, the demons leave the man. And some of you probably have wondered, well, why does Jesus allow these demons to go into this herd of swine, I'm going to suggest to you in order to prove to later generations that this isn't a mental, emotional, or a psychological disorder. A mental, emotional, and a psychological disorder doesn't have the ability to compel pigs to commit pork suicide. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, it says, He cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Look at that verse. In verse 7, the word torment, it's the verb basanidzo. It comes from a noun, basanas. Basanas is is a word that was used in the ancient world to talk about a touchstone when a person was trying to tell if something was silver or gold. When they were trying to determine the value of something, they would take the metal and they would rub it against the, the touchstone to see if it was truly valuable. And by it was a dark stone that was used to test metal and that dark stone became a word or a euphemism to mean examination. And then it became to mean examination by torture. And then it came to mean torture. The demon is expressing fear that Jesus would immediately send them to the place of the unrighteous dead, to Gehenna. Demons speak. They know that they are doomed. They believe in one God in James chapter 2 verse 19 and tremble. And they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. By nature, they're in complete opposition to Jesus. They're opposed to holiness and purity. And remember what Jesus has done. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. And all evil spirits will one day be dealt with. And so we see the power of Jesus manifested in verse 8. He said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he, that is Jesus, said, what is your name? By the way, he's not asking him his name because he doesn't know his name. He isn't asking the name because he, some people would say, well, you know, I thought he was the second person of the Trinity and he knows everything about everything. And the answer is he does. I need to help you with something. Typically in the Bible, when God speaks... And particularly when he asks a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. In Genesis, when God says, where are you, Adam? Is it because God's going, oh, he's playing hide and seek again and I can't find him? No, it's giving him an opportunity to respond. And he asks him, what is your name? And he answered, 
My name is Legion, for we are many. You should be able to determine at least a couple of things right off the bat from the text. Number one, demons are capable of speech, demons are capable of fear, and demons have names. And look at verse 10. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Why? Because the Bible says that a place of discipline and punishment will take place in eternity. It says in verse 11, now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains on the east side of the Galilee in the area that's called Gadara or Gadara. This is a place that's primarily filled with Gentiles. Were there Jews on that side? Yes. There were primarily Gentiles. Why would there be a pig farm in a Jewish settlement? I'm going to suggest to you that there were two types of Jews. There were religiously observant Jews, and there were the non-religious, non-observant Jews. Also, there's a huge Roman garrison stationed not far away, and pigs would have provided the perfect opportunity to feed the troops. Also, it wasn't unusual in that culture and society that people would offer goats, chickens, and pigs to false deities. Hence the whole discussion that takes place in the New Testament between meats offered to idols. And look what it says. So the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. This is the first mention in the Bible of deviled ham. <laughs> Mark does give us a little insight. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place. For those of you who have been to Israel with me, you know that on the eastern side of the lake, there are limestone cliffs and a profound drop which is really the only place where this event could have taken place. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. The point, the power of Jesus is invincible. He dismisses the demons with a single word. He blows away evil. He has complete healing power. And then he will restore the image of this man who has been completely disfigured by sin. You know, it's interesting to me that some critics of the Bible and of the text are more concerned about the death of the swine than the demoniac's affliction. They'll go, well, why did Jesus let these little poor piggies die such a terrible death? You need to understand something. Jesus doesn't kill the pigs. He permits the demons to do it. It was Satan's destructive power that did it. We have no record of who owned the pig herd. But if it's Jews, guess what? It's like operating a crack cocaine outlet or a meth lab. Jews have no business having pigs. It's a contraband farm. <laughs> Plus all the souls, the soul of the man. Let me ask you a question. If you took all of the pigs that ever existed on the planet Earth, would they amount to the value of one human soul? The answer is no. In verse 15 it says, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. Look what it says, sitting. You know what you can imply from the text? That that was something unusual for this man. Clothed. 
Do you know what you can imply from the text? What was he before that? Naked. And look what else it says. And in his right mind. What does that tell you? That there was a time when that's exactly what wasn't real for him. And they were afraid. You know why they were afraid? Because it was such a profound and a complete transformation. Luke's gospel adds a little insight. In Luke 8, 35, it says, Then they, that is the people who tended the pigs, went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. The former possessed man is now rational and peaceful. This last week I had Sam Childers on my radio program. He's called the machine gun preacher. Sam Childers grew up in a Christian home. I was told about Jesus from a very early age. At the age of 11, he started experimenting with drugs. And at 12, he started doing hard drugs. And at 13 and 14, he was doing acid on a regular basis. He was mainlining drugs. He became completely immersed in a drug culture and the boundaries and the barriers that mark normal human interaction disappeared for him until he found himself as a shotgunner. He was a person who, with drug dealers, would go to the drug deal. And if anything went wrong during the course of the drug deal, it was his responsibility to kill everyone who was involved. He met a stripper and married her. There were no boundaries. There was no morals. There was nothing that he wouldn't do. On my radio program, he looked at me and he said, You know what, Gino? I have met so many wicked and perverse and evil people, people who were profoundly, malevolently committed to wickedness. And he said, you know who is the most wicked person I've ever met? He looked at me and his eyes misted over a little bit and he said, me. There was no one more horrible, more mean, more wicked. He was in a bar fight. It almost killed him. He remembered the words of his father. This stuff is going to kill you. It haunted him. It followed him. He wasn't ready to come into a right relationship with God, but he went away from his wicked lifestyle. His wife got amazingly saved, begged him to go to church. He eventually went to church, but he didn't change. He tells the story of how He was laying in the bed and his wife was weeping and begging God from the foot of the bed to intervene and change his life. And he said it was like the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit haunted him. And he went to church and he responded to the gospel. No matter how great A human being has been controlled and manipulated and moved by wickedness. There is this powerful Savior who is able to fundamentally and profoundly change you. The man was hopelessly possessed by evil spirits. 
without Jesus in verses 2 through 5. Aroused by the Son of God in verses 6 and 7. Miraculously cleansed by the authority of Jesus in verses 8 through 13. I don't know if you can relate. I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life where you made certain choices and those choices were so wicked and so selfish that they could even rise to the level of what could legitimately called evil. And you're wondering if God could descend into a heart so low and a lifestyle so wicked But I'm here to tell you that there is a Jesus who can change the dark areas of your life. There is a Jesus who can penetrate into those what seem like impenetrable areas of your life that are controlled by sin. Do you ever wonder if there's any way for the fear to go away or the pain to go away or the controlling addictions to go away? And with the word of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, restoration is a simple statement away. The demon-possessed man, uncontrollable, untamed, unrestrained, mad, violent. All human help had failed. And how did the neighbors react? Did they come out rejoicing? Did they go, look, this broken, wounded, hounded man, he's been miraculously delivered. Look at verse 15. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told him how it happened to him who had been possessed. They began to plead with him to depart from their region. Leave Jesus, leave, leave Jesus, leave now. They were afraid. By the way, there are three prayers in this passage. Have you found them? Three prayers in the passage. The demons pray to be sent into the herd of swine. Are there, is their prayer answered? The citizens pray and beg Jesus to live or to, to leave. Prayer answered? Look at the end. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him, begged him, begged him that he might leave with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion for you. Think about this for just a moment. The demon's prayer is answered. The foreigner's prayer is answered. But this poor man, who had been in such a dark place, in such a wicked place, in such an empty place, he simply begs Jesus, please let me go with you. And he's given different instructions. By the way, when the citizens pray and ask Jesus to leave the territory, why is that? Because their encounter with Jesus and the demoniac has made a lucrative pig business go sow belly up. 
Hey, sometimes Jesus will come on the scene and you might think, well, can I still be a stripper and be strip for Jesus? No. Well, can I still be a drug dealer and be a drug dealer for Jesus? No. Can you lie, cheat, steal, and continue in a provocative business that is not God-honoring and that is not God-respecting? The answer is no. All the pig futures were floating in the lake. The pigs were in hog heaven. Okay, I'll stop. You see, their fear was commercial and economic. They valued the pigs more than they valued the man. You know what's one of the saddest things about this passage? For some people, pigs will always be more important than people. For some people, they will choose swine over the souls of men and women. One ancient writer said, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. You love men, we swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul? What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole? Since we have lost our swine, Jesus takes a man dark, empty, broken, and gives him a life. That's what God did to my friend Sam Childers. His life was dark and empty and broken. And he had this crazy idea that he would go to Africa. And he had this crazy idea that he would help children. And the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord said, you're going to build an orphanage. And he had this crazy idea that God had spoken to him and said to him that I've appointed you for such a time as this. That you're going to intervene in the life of those who have nothing. And I'm going to use you. The man who had been possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus said, go home to your family. Our story concludes with a desire denied and a duty described and a disciple who was determined. When you come to the end of the passage, he says, go home to your friends. And remember that the former demon-possessed man apparently is going to publicly go on record. And remember that this is a voluntarily and primarily a, a Gentile area. And he probably becomes the first full-time evangelist to the Gentiles. And Jesus isn't refusing the man's love and he isn't refusing the man's discipleship. Jesus is simply telling him, there's something you need to do first. You know, it's hard to plumb those kinds of depths of wickedness and not hurt your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your family and your friends. When you have that kind of wicked, horrible life, there's usually collateral damage. Sam Childer said, 
I've done some really bad things. I've done some wicked things and I've done unforgivable things. And he said, you know what? And one day, one day, I'm going to have to accept the consequences of what I've done. But in the meantime, Jesus saves and forgives. And just because Jesus doesn't call you or use you on your terms doesn't mean that he doesn't want to use you. And the delivered man has an opportunity to share his testimony. And isn't it true sometimes the very first thing we need to do is go home? And we may need to make certain things right that are terribly wrong. Jesus will take care of our failure And he will take care of our present sin. And he will take care of our current bondage. And he will give us a future hope. But don't make the same mistake that the delivered man's neighbors did. They begged Jesus to leave. And by the way, you might do that from time to time. You might pray, you might come to church and you might feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and you might feel this sense in which God is speaking to you and Jesus is calling you and you say no and you say go away. And it could very well be that Jesus will answer your prayers and he'll leave you alone today. Don't be surprised if he shows up tomorrow and he invites you again. That there's forgiveness and hope again. I wish I could say that that invitation will be extended every day, day after day. But there might come a moment when the voice stops speaking and the conscience stops speaking and the heart stops speaking. Just remember that whatever you're dealing with, whether it's a miserable past or a messed up present, Jesus can speak the word. Go home to your friends. Tell them the things that the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. At the very end of his life, the apostle Paul wrote Timothy, the last sentence and the last word. He wrote, the Lord the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and he will bring me safely home to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. The Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus takes care of us. Redemption. Reconciliation. And in the not too distant future, a resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we thank you that you're in the business of changing people's lives. Lord, your, inter- your ability to intervene in the darkest of circumstances is so powerful and so incredible. 
Lord, we pray that we would not be so in love with what we have that we forget about the people that Jesus has come to die for. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. That no matter how fierce the storm and no matter how violent the opposition, that Jesus is in the business of redeeming the worst and the wicked. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.